Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Pod friends, do we have a conversation for you? Today we get to talk with Joe Truss. Joe, Shane, and I did a joint workshop thing together several years ago, like right as the pandemic hit. I think it was that summer and we were just like, what is going on? And then Shane and Joe have continued to work together. They have a joint article coming out. They're doing some joint projects together. But Joe always brings the fire. So we are so excited for this conversation. Welcome, Joe. What's up, Alcine? Good to see you again after all these years of knowing each other and it's nice to see you both leading this podcast and just building on the work that you all have been doing and keeping people nourished and thinking and, you know, uh, fueled up for the fight. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to be with you outside of our district project, which takes a lot of our time. And I'm excited about the article that just came out in EL Magazine. Folks, get your hands on the change leadership issue Joe and I wrote with a colleague in San Mateo Union about what we've been learning from a two-year district-wide anti-racism project in that district. So let's get into it. We always like to start with story. Can you tell us about little Joe? Who was he? Where is he from? How did his early experiences in school and out of school shape who you are today as both a professional and as a partner and a parent? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, little Joe grew up on the corner of Leavenworth and Turk in the Tenderloin in the 1980s, you know, in a special time in our nation's history in general, but also in the inner city, you know, in any city of America. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. Drugs like cocaine and quaaludes still are often hidden in legitimate commercial shipments or brought in by individual couriers. There are about 30 active street gangs in San Francisco, but four of them are dominant, police sources say. They run huge... Um, so, I, you know, I grew up in the midst of a lot of hard things for kids to be living amongst in the 1980s in a, in a hard, you know, red light district, a no rules, kind of no holes barred kind of a, of a neighborhood in the neighborhood at least, a lot of violence, a lot of gangs, a lot of drugs, a lot of a lot of distraction, a lot of things that little kids shouldn't have to yeah. put up with and people shouldn't have to live within. That was on the outside. On the inside, you know, it was me and my mom. I grew up in a single parent home, only child. You know, little Joe played Nintendo. You know, watch TV shows and uh, love school, you know? For me, I can't separate that from the fact that I found success in schools. Yeah. I had success in schools and hmm. I was kind of there for whatever's what was being given to me, whether it was good or bad. I was just there for it because I was just soaking up what, what was there. That being said, in my neighborhood, my kids, the kids I grew up with, all my friends, they didn't necessarily find success in schools. They found the opposite. They found kind of not being welcomed, not being uh, supported, being pushed out and finding their, you know, calling in the streets. So, you know, I had my experience of being in schools and seeing my friends get wrapped up in all the things I listed before at a very young age, right? Starting as young as middle school. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so like when I watch shows like The Wire and they said like, oh, the little kids are doing this little party. For me, like that was my growing up, you know, like for me, I had a very clear decision when I decided not to do those things. I could have joined gangs, many of my friends did. I could have been selling drugs, many of my friends did. And I was just like, I'm not, that's not for me. That's not what I want to be doing with my life. Mm. I'm doing school, but as I continued in school, I started to wrestle with the fact or the question of why mm-hmm. am I finding success in schools and my friends are not, mm. right? Yeah. Why am I seeing something for me? You know, why am I staying in, but my, my friends are not, especially when I was in high school and I got to college. And then when I got to college, I started learning the social, political, historical context of those questions and those answers. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, I was just doing school, whether, you know, whether it was Shakespeare or Shakespeare. You know what I mean? I was doing it, right? <laughs> I found out that Shakespeare wasn't the only person writing books a little later on in life. But for the time being, you know, I was with the program. Yeah. So for me, as I wrestled with why my I had a certain experience, but my friends did not have that experience, I came up with questions, right? What about history led to that? What about the social experience led to that? What about my friends being new refugees, new immigrants in America, many coming from Southeast Asia, many coming from Latin America? What about their experience led them to do certain things with their lives and and also fall into certain pitfalls that were built into our society? And why didn't I fall into those? And then really, how do I reckon with the privilege that I gathered through that process, right? Because mm. the other piece is, as I moved up through this process, the message mm. I got in schools, high school, especially in college, when I got to Berkeley was, I'm special. This is the message still, right? I'm special. I deserve to be here. I'm better than those other people because of the things I, I did. So therefore, I deserve certain things. They don't deserve certain things. So therefore, I should get my get out get rich, get paid, and step on these small people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, that's not that's a message that I had to choose to push back on and not absorb, but that was a very clear message for folks who have success, whether you're in advanced classes or honors or APs or prestigious schools or whatever. The message is, like, you're better than those other people, so you don't mm-hmm. owe them anything, so therefore go ahead and take advantage of them. And for me, I was like, no, that's not who... I want to be. And now that I see the game and I see how it's set up, mm. I'm going to go do something else with the privilege that I'm uh, accumulating. I founded EA, Envision Academy in Oakland, and you became a teacher there. It must have been a year or two after I left. Yeah, yeah. It might have been like one semester off, but it was close. So what kind of teacher were you, Joe? And how did you aspire to center student voice? My first year before I was at EA, I was at a school called East Oakland Community. That was my first year of being a teacher. So I went out to Boston for teacher ed, came back to that. There was a teacher that I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be a liberatory oriented teacher. I thought I was going to be a inspiring, relevant, engaging teacher, right? I wanted to be a teacher that was uh, Mm -hmm. bringing access for students to knowledge that normally is denied, right? Yeah. Stories that we don't get told, the untold stories, uh, the stories of our truth, of our history. And then I got met with school, real school, right? Real life in the sense of like, okay, it's not that easy. I don't necessarily have all the skills to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, when I had my first year of teaching in East Oakland, 
uh, the students there, they didn't know me. I was new. I, I went through my experience of like, at that point, I don't know, 20 some, 20 some years or something like that. But they don't know my experience, right? I don't have credibility with them because one, I'm not from Oakland. I'm not from East Oakland. And who the hell am I? Right? Who, who do I think I am, right? Hmm. And I was trying to bring these you know, things I thought were interesting to curriculum. And they weren't interesting. To the, to the kids, right? That wasn't relevant to, to them too. And when that stuff wasn't working, I was trying to rely on these very antiquated punish punishment-oriented systems of discipline. So when it wasn't working, I was relying on that. Mm. Um, and that's kind of all I had. And I actually hadn't been introduced to restorative justice at that point and hadn't really been trained in it. So I was very punishment-oriented, to be honest with you, right? Wow. And even as I got to Envision Academy, I still kind of had a very punishment-oriented disposition with behavior, right? So I was bringing, at that point, I started bringing some more relevant, inspiring, ethnic studies oriented, Afrocentric stuff, but it wasn't really matching my relationship with the students quite right. yet. So there were some holes. Mm. So in the beginning, I was, I was a much more top-down teacher. I was much more like rigor first, you know what I mean? And then I switched that to realize that it needed to be about the relationships. It needed to be about the relevance. It needed to be about the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I went through an evolution pretty quickly. Can I ask you, how did you get there? Like, what did you do to get to that relevancy for your students? Yeah, I mean, you know, especially when I was in East Oakland, my kids were were very blatantly honest with me, Mm. which I appreciate. And, you know, and at the times I wasn't trying to hear that because I was really I was on my own stuff. Right. I was like, I'm, you know, I did this. I did that. I know who I am. I'm bringing you some good stuff. Right. And wrong. That wasn't the right stuff. I wasn't going about it in the right way. And what I appreciate about strong students who, you know, normally get pushed out of the system, and we say those are the weak students often, right? They're the weak ones who can't take the programming. The strong ones are like, no, I'm not with this bullshit. Mm. You're, I'm calling bullshit on the system, I'm calling bullshit on you. I don't trust you. So they kept me very honest, right? Real talk. And it was like, okay, well, I need to bring it. I need to bring it even more, right? And not in a way of like, I need to uh, be more punishment oriented, or be have better systems like my shit just needs to be tighter like it needs to be it needs to be more valuable but then the question is what's valuable to students nowadays was what was valuable to them and that answer shifted when i got to envision academy you know in a, a, mm. at elc my my kids were black and latinx when i got to envision it was mainly black students so my answer shifted very quickly but like what's relevant to black students mainly from oakland who go to this school while i'm teaching high school spanish so what got me there was trying to answer the relevancy of why does any of this stuff matter, right? So I had these students, especially during my second and third years of teaching, who would tell me like, this doesn't matter. None of this matters. This is unimportant. I don't care about this, right? So I was like, okay, what can I bring so that so that they actually want to be here for this thing that's coming, right? And what can I bring so that I'm answering the question of why this matters or I, or I find out what matters to them first mm-hmm. and build my stuff around what matters to them. Right. Mm. And bring the content after. Right. They're the content. So for me, it was just a complete disposition change from it's coming from me. It's coming from the front. It's coming from the stage on the stage to what's on your mind. And let's build from there. So we're going to shift from your teacher years to your principal years. You were a principal for, I think, six years at Viz Valley, yeah, in a very vibrant, diverse middle school in Southeast San Francisco near June Jordan, the school that I led. Some of your stories and voice show up in Chapter 8 of Street Data, which is about how do we break the cycle of shame 
that really inhibits people from taking risks in their practice and growing in precisely the ways that you just were talking about, right? Like looking in the mirror, listening to student voices, even when they're hard to hear, being willing to push our own practice. And the kind of theory or the stance in that chapter is about vulnerability and what does it mean to kind of embrace our own vulnerability and create conditions as leaders where folks can be vulnerable with their practice. So we're curious to hear maybe a moment, a story, a one-inch window from your principalship around this idea of vulnerability and then what you learned in that moment. One moment, I haven't written about this, but I made a note at some point to write about this, was there are these moments when, when you are a leader and you have some teams established and you're always trying to get people to be on the team or stay on the team, whether it's a leadership team or committee or some sort. But you have these moments where people are just like, I'm not going to be on the team anymore, right? I don't want to be on this leadership team. I don't want to be on this committee. I don't want this position anymore, right? Mm. And there was this moment where a teacher, you know, mid-year, and, you know, every year there's always folks who like to opt in and out for whatever reason. But there was this one that's, that stuck with me or someone who I know was building their leadership skills and someone who I knew had a strong voice around what needs to be happening in a school, a teacher, teacher leader. And this teacher was like, I don't want to be on this. And I was like, okay. I was like, why? Right? Talk to me. Um, and this person was just like, you know, well, I just think this is all bullshit. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, damn, one, damn. You know what I mean? I was like, that's not what I'm going for. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in year three, four. I'm trying to do all these different things. Like, I'm literally trying to do the not bullshit plan, right? So, you know, just like the students humble us around what we think's going on and what's, and what's really going on, you know, our colleagues do that as well, yep. right? And that was a reminder of just like, no, it's not enough. It's not it, right? always uh, uh, balance this tension between a vision, having a vision, maintaining any vision with a co-constructed uh, shared vision, yeah. which is hard. Sometimes those things are mutually exclusive, right? To actually, because you can have a, sh- a shared vision, but that shared vision can change every month. Mm. So when I hear that message, I'm like, damn, like, mm. and I know, right? Because I'm somebody who comes in with a lot of vision and a lot of ideas, Right. So uh, I know that I, I have to I always have to figure out ways to be democratic, to co-construct, to all that kind of stuff. So when I heard this from this message, the vulnerability piece was I need to hear that and say, like, you know what? That's not what I'm going for. But I hear that's what you're saying. Mm. Right. Yes. Right. And if that's kind of where we got to with somebody who I was hoping to support their leadership development, because I'm not trying to be there all the time. And people need to have other leadership uh, opportunities, too. So my message to this teacher was like, okay, all right, let me marinate on this and let me think actually, and let me try to go about doing the thing that I said I was trying to do that you didn't really experience differently in the future. You may not see it, mm-hmm. but I said, if mm-hmm. you have this experience where you see a shift, I was like, come on back. You know what I mean? Like, come on back, right? The great piece of the story is towards the end, this person came back and they were like, you know, like, I appreciate kind of where this is at. And like, this person reminded me, like, hey, I remember that conversation we had trust where you said that and like you know whatever I was going through some stuff and I saw some stuff but this is kind of what I see and you know and this person ended up taking all this kind of leadership maybe not formally through the committee that they were previously on but then kind of returned back to like other committees and stuff right but for me my piece of that was slowing down right 
you know, like who cares what my vision is if it's not cool constructed and if it's not felt and if it's not understood and embraced, yep. it, it matters kind of what we embrace together. But as a leader, I have to figure out how to create the conditions. So for us to do that is something that's still answering the right question, right? Because we can co-construct a whole bunch of status quo every day, all day, right? But co-constructing change and transformation is very different. And so you're able to see patterns of how white supremacy culture seems to be playing out in school districts in particular. Because, you know, one of the things that Shane and I were talking about, we were trying to figure out, like, we have a lot of folks who listen to this who are different levels of, of district leadership and are thinking about, like, what's the transformation? What's the cycle of transformation? Or what's the ways that we can get this stuff to happen? So I, I primarily want you to think about this from a district level. What are the big patterns you're seeing around white supremacy culture? And more importantly, what are some antidotes that you are advocating for? that will help dismantle that in district systems. The first one that often pops up is around power hoarding, right? And, you know, it, you know, flashback to when I first started looking at this article as a principal with my staff, right? The, the educators I was working with and that question was posed. Okay, well, what are we seeing? Well, their first answer was power hoarding and you, you know what I mean? And, you know, <laughs> You know, black, black men can't have any power. You know what I mean? That's, that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, this is the first piece because when we think about oppression, the first piece is around who has power, right? Whether the, whether we were talking about men or we we're talking about white people or we were talking about cisgendered folks or we we're talking about people with money or people with positional power, power, right? So the biggest thing that is holding organizations back is power hoarding. Right. Because generally the people with the power want to maintain the power. And there happen to be, you know, clear demographic patterns with people in those positions. They often are white. And if not white, they're often men. Not always, but often white. And with that power, they're made, they're using their power to hold a status quo that's maintaining a power structure. Right. Of patriarchy, of white supremacy. Uh, so that is the biggest piece, because, you know, the, who are the people who could see it? Usually the people without the power, okay? Right? And if we talk about like positions, you know, if you want to know who has the answer to what needs to happen in the school district, classify staff, the students, the families, because they're the people who tend to have the least amount of positional power in an organization. Or if we talk about just demographics, the people of color tend to have less power in organizations. So the power is usually being hoarded by white people, right? Right. Um, so the right. biggest thing is because like that's ultimately what has to shift because whatever we do, at some point we get some answers. And the question is, does the organization want to shift based on what the people are saying or not? But normally, often the organization knows that they don't want to make that shift. So they don't even want to ask the damn question because mm. they know they don't want to make the shift, right? Second with that, is defensiveness, right? Yep. Often by same thing, not necessarily people with positional power, but now we're talking about people with the social capital, people with uh, power dynamic in society. Again, white people and men, those two groups, especially strongest I see, right? So we're doing some work and it only takes one, two, three, sometimes only one person to shut the whole thing down because they all of a sudden are in their feelings and defensive about their discomfort. They're confusing discomfort with actual harm. Yep. Right? And thinking that because I'm experiencing discomfort, I'm going to shut this whole shit down. Yeah. Right? Shut it down. No more trainings, no more readings. We don't want to hear that no more. Let's call it white supremacy culture, but not talk about whiteness. These things, 
They prevent the work from continuing, which prevent the work from happening, right? And all those other things kind of relate. You know, I can go down the list of the characteristics of white supremacy culture and how they show up for sure, but that's generally what it is, right? It's the status quo being threatened and, you know, not wanting to shift that much. Right? Mm. So we can't even get to the real stuff. We, I mean, we can't even get to the practices and the policies mm. and, and, and the evaluation system and the testing system, all that kind of stuff, because we can't even have an ongoing, sustained conversation about what's going on because I'm feeling some kind of way. And I don't know what to do with those feelings. Mm. You, you said so much. And the hard part is how do you make sense of this power hoarding. I think I know what you might say, but how do you make sense of the power hoarding when the power hoarding comes in a black or brown body who's in leadership, right? I have a lot of compassion when I see that happening, when I see a black or brown leader just really holding tight to these power structures. And yet it is also the work that needs to be done, right? About like, <laughs> we still got to go there. We still got to push through. How in the work that you're doing with districts, when you come across black and brown leaders at the district level who are really clinging tight to that power or resisting the shift beyond the status quo, how do you, how do you make sense of that? And what do you do? You know, one is just to acknowledge that, you know, your skin color is not the only entrance to the party. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It may give you an identity, it may give you an experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that comes out of your mouth is going to be about change and transformation, right? Because we get advanced through this system based on how willing we are to promote the status quo and the white power structure, right? right? right. And some folks, as you move through that system and get advanced and move up these, these, little, these little mini rungs in the ladder, you think that if you if you if you say anything, they're gonna knock you off and you're going back to the bottom, right? As folks of color, we can easily be saying the same message that white folks say in a brown body, Ooh. right? Uh, so it's hard because what sometimes this is a little more advanced. The white folks are necessarily not to distinguish the difference between just because you're brown means you know, listen to black, black and brown women means whatever they say is facts. It's like, <laughs> but you can also do harm with folk with what you say too, and you can still promote a white power structure. So that's just knowing that that's in the mix, right? How, how do you deal with that is we need space, we need racial affinity space for black and brown folks and for white folks too, right? Which I know we'll talk about, but the purpose of that is so that we can have some conversations around internalized oppression in brown space so that we can reconcile that. Because like yep. sometimes I tell this message to folks that, you know, um, we got to be ready when they ask us again, right? Because in 2020, they were like, okay, black and brown people, we care what you think today. We care what you think this year, what you got to say. And if, and we don't, people are not asking me that today in 2023 though, we're in a different different paradigm, right? But when they do ask me, I get a moment if my answer is like, well, you know, I go back to my like little Joe story of like, well, I think like, you know, I think they're not working hard enough. You know what I mean? I worked so hard, I did X, Y, and Z, so I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, cool, you confirm my bias, you confirm my answer, I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna go with the brown person who supports racism, I'm gonna go with what they said, right? Um, but we can only deal with that in racial affinity for black and brown folks, right? Um, how do you deal with that? That's hard because all black and brown folks don't wanna really go in the mirror to do that kind of work, right? So that's, you know, but I, but I can't have that message in a shared space in front of everybody. That message has to come in racial affinity, right? 
just hit on so many nuances of the work around identity, around power, around emotionality, and, you know, folks' ability to tolerate, sit with, metabolize emotion, right? And how that's different in white bodies and in brown bodies. And you took us right up to the next question, like perfect, (laughs) perfect segue, which is around racial affinity space. So you have been an important voice, and I would say a teacher for me, really, in this movement to center racial affinity space as a key element of transformative professional learning for educators. You wrote a beautiful piece with your colleague Jen Benkowitz around racial affinity as a secret sauce, I believe it was called, for doing this work, anti-racism work. And so why do you feel like this is a secret sauce? And then what are you uncovering through the street data of actually running racial affinity spaces across the states? There's so many connections I can make. One is around ZPD right? Zone proximal development, right? It's different for us depending on the identity that we have and depending on what work we've been doing within said identity, okay? But we can't, we're talking about differentiation. We can't differentiate for all of that in a shared space where we're all together. We're all doing one reading. We all got one prompt, we're all together. It's all open door and nothing is close. There's no protection around what I want to share. Like, how are we differentiating with that? Right? Correct. Um, yeah. So it allows for us to make some differentiated decisions, right? Some differentiated curricular decisions, right? One, and if we accept that there are different, different work for us to do to get there, then we need the space. And then once we have the space, it's kind of like if uh, if you're in a classroom and all of a sudden when you got small group work or you got station, you'd be like, oh, shit, I could be doing four different things. You know what I mean? Like I could have the students choose which of the four things they think they, you know what I mean? And then choose the next one. Right. And then once you have the space, you're like, oh, well, now that I have it, how can I use it? And that's what gets interesting. Right. Because like, you know, my fir- some of my first work was around just creating a space where people can have like a pair share that is in racial affinity to respond to a, respond to a certain prompt, maybe a different reading. But then once as I do this ongoing work with districts and other folks, other schools and stuff, once we've done the racial affinity work and people understand the why and the purpose and they got some foundational stuff. Now we can do some stuff and then break for a minute, just like in a classroom, you could be like, oh, let's get a circle. We need a circle. We need to circle up on some stuff. Because that's, that's a pedagogical move that we have. I love that pedagogy connection. That's some frameworks that the that the learners have, and we can use it as such. We can do the same thing with racial affinity. Like, okay, boom. And in my work now, I do. We're going to answer this prompt in racial affinity. You already know why. Yep. You can pull on that stuff. You can pull on the stuff from three months ago. Now we can have a certain conversation, right? The other piece along with that is now we can do something with what we learn in racial affinity that supports what we do in a shared space. Two biggest things. One, it allows BIPOC folks possibly to come together to build some sort of solidarity around what it is we need, both people in color in general need, people of color in general need, but also our multifaceted cultural ethnic experiences. We can have some sort of collective voice to, to, to say that. So it's not always like a one on uh, a David versus Goliath uh, fight behind closed doors conversation, we can have some sort of a larger movement. On the white side, it allows folks to start to do some work that they have not been doing, right? Mm-hmm. And the conversations that white people have to have when there are no people of color present. Oh, man. You're talking about ZBD? People just yes. like, 
whoa, like that's, it's so rigorous. It's so intellectually and emotionally rigorous for folks. And we talk about secret sauce, preparing white folks to do, doing that work, to prepare them how to show up in a shared work, to prepare them how to show up right in the institution. Come on, man. So we've each had the chance to partner with you in different projects, right? And you offer and lead, uh, facilitate across various identity differences. What key principles or lessons learned can you share with folks that help to make cross-racial work powerful in its impact and relationally grounded? I think one, we have to know what we're working towards. Yeah. Because that potentially changes how we're doing the work and how our dynamic is going to be. So if we're doing anti-racist work, and for me, I like, I like to stay in my lane. Like there's lots of works to do, but I like to work on anti-racism. So if we're working on anti-racism, then if we're doing cross-racial work, it must be tilted towards the person, person who is living an experience dealing with racism. Now this is difficult though, mm. because we have this idea that everything's 50-50 in general. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that feels nice, sounds nice, so let's do that. Two, when we're doing work in systems with white educators, they want to hear from the white people. They want to hear from the white leaders. Yep. They may pretend and, and, and say that they want to hear from the people of color and what the people of color have to say, but we know this very well, at least me and you and I have seen, as soon as a white person says mm -hmm. that, like, oh my God, that's insightful. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I have no memory. I have no memory that that was just said by the brown person also standing here or, or that I read 25 books about that shit. Yeah. Okay. But the fact that you said it now in person in your white body in a vulnerable way, mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 it illegitimizes it, but it also mm -hmm. um, invites folks in a vulnerable way of seeing, like I've never seen a white person do that. Right. Or I've, I, it's been a while since I've seen that. And I have to acknowledge that it's possible because the person in front of me is saying it, too. So this idea of cross racial. But that only works if the white person says that thing in their white body, mm -hmm. acknowledging their white identity. Right. That doesn't always happen, though. Right. Sometimes in a cross racial, people cannot say that and lean on the person of color to say those things. Yeah. Right. Uh, so so we need to be on the same page, right? Yeah. So if we talk about yeah. co-conspirator, me and a colleague up in Portland are working on this training around co-conspiring on anti-racist leadership. That only works if we are co-conspiring towards a shared identified goal too, only if we also know how. what are we going to say when it gets hard, mm. when there's resistance, when there's confusion, when there's pushback, when there's attacking of, of the black and brown person there, when there's judgment, what are we going to say? Do you know your role in that particular moment to be like, you know, I'm going to play my white card in this moment and be like, boom, I see your racist attack or your defensiveness and I raise you white accountability. You know what I mean? Oh no, you know what I mean? Draw four, God damn it, right? Ugh. If we don't know that that's what we're gonna have to do, then it doesn't happen, right? So there's got to be like a tandem kind of like 
uh, thing, right? And sometimes we're, we're prepped and we know that. Sometimes we got to work that off offline. Sometimes you miss that opportunity. I got to tell you the next time. Yeah. But if we're not looking for that, you're not going to get it. We just got to be on the same page. Uh, we got to push. Yeah. Uh, and you got to know how to push from your identity, right? Chapter eight in Street Data is about the equity transformation cycle, which you and I have been working with somewhat in our joint project in San Mateo. And it kind of rewalks readers through this flow of starting with listening at the margins in one's classrooms, school, district, pausing, slowing down, to use your word from the leadership question, really slowing down to uncover what that street data reveals about root causes about inequities in the system. So I'm just curious how how you hope these ideas around street data and centering voices from the margins, which I think have informed our collaborative work in this district, will transform what happens in schools and classrooms. A few things come up. So one is knowing that the listening piece is ongoing. If I'm gonna play my, my brown marginalization card as a brown person, I don't just want to be listened to. Lastly, who's assessing what we're doing? Who should be assessed? If you li- if you were listening to me <laughs> in the beginning, play the student card. If you're going to go listen to students about what their experience is, what needs to change, then who should be assessing the progress of that work or the implementation? The students. Yeah. Right? So we, and that gets us back from power hoarding to power shared to like, let go of the power. Like maybe you just do a job now and your job is to bring the right people to the table and get up, get away from the table, right? And, and, and put a chair up, right? And put the people in the seat, right? Um, so that piece there around what do I hope it's doing? I hope that at some point, if we're going to say that those students matter enough to change some stuff for, then we ask them how we're doing. And we're not done until they say we're done. You know what I mean? Two, um, what's most missing in a lot of these equations is that it's going to require some change. I love the, we're not done until they say we're done. I love that. I love that quote so much. I'm going to sit with that. Yeah. And in that, I heard you talk, I mean, about action research, essentially. Look at a place that has similar students, similar conditions, similar something, see what they're doing and try it in your building. (laughs) Right. And keep, keep going, keep iterating. That's what, that's what I heard you say. Like, just keep going. And you're done when the kids tell you you're done or the parents tell you you're done or whoever you've you've decided to listen to tell you you're done. Man, yes, the students or the marginalized folks can tell you something about their identity. But we got people who write whole ass books about things we should be doing in schools nowadays. Right. Sometimes we we do this design thinking kind of process where it's just like, oh, let's start. Let's pretend there are no answers out there and pretend like we got to go find the answers again. For 20, 30, 50, 60 years, depending on where you look, but especially the last 10 to 20 years, people have been writing whole ass books, whole ass dissertations, founding whole schools with great ideas. And we are not the ones that are assessing what's going on. All right. So this is our lightning round. 10 seconds or less to answer these questions, Joe. All right, you're called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Breathe and say thank you. 
What is a practice or a way of being, a knowledge, a skill, a ritual, a capacity that keeps you grounded in the face of oppression, resistance, and the struggle for justice? Yeah, removing the tension from my lower back. Oh, that's a good one. All right. Here's the other one. What is one form of street data every educator should gather? How people say they feel. What's the type of data you feel is overused? End of the year tests. Great answer. All right. <laughs> What's one essential feature of your vision of a classroom? Movement. All right. Last one. A great learning experience will. Make you uncomfortable. That's great. I don't think anybody said that before. All right, Joe, thank you for being with us today. So excited to share this conversation with folks. You are a national treasure. You bring the fire every time and folks are lucky to get to learn from you. And I feel so privileged to get to continue to work alongside you. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on the Street Pod. Thank you. Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all. And we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Shane, I forgot to hit record <laughs> until halfway through on my Zoom. <laughs> <laughs>